Get ready, it's time. Motherhood Talk Radio, starring Sandra Beck, is the most powerful voice in women's issues today. As the owner of Motherhood Incorporated, Sandra brings you inspiring, influential, and interesting resources to help you navigate everything from childcare to corporate formation. Each episode of Motherhood Talk Radio features guests who all have a story, experts in their field, and information you won't want to miss. We bring you everything from the latest crafting tips to how to be sexy in your 40s. From great parenting tips to moms facing some tough challenges, and most importantly, how to bounce back with style. Motherhood Talk Radio helps you make a difference in your world and the world around us. Being all you can be starts right here, right now. Let's do it. Here's your host, Sandra Beck. everybody. This is Sandra Beck, and I'm here today with Bill O'Haran, and we're going to talk parenting. We're going to talk relationships. We're going to talk about his new book, and it's going to be so great. You're going to be glad you tuned in today. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Love, love getting the chance to speak. Me too. My wife, Me too. My wife says... My wife says I'm incapable, incapable of small talk. All I want to talk about is relationships and stuff, so hopefully I'll be able to Share a few insights. Well, hopefully that means you're good in your relationship. <laughs> I don't <Theoretically>, know. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. We'll but see. so you wrote a book about relationships. And tell me a little bit about your background. Who is Bill O'Haran? For yeah, a, thank you so much. Um, yeah, so I got, uh, you know, English major, uh, mid-80s. I'm 55 years old. Um, and, you know, I got out of school one day in September right out of school and I said, I'm either going to go left and make some money in, you know, in the business field or go right and uh, be an English teacher in, in, uh, in Manhattan. I decided to go left and, and uh, spent a bunch of years uh, and still am in the financial field. I'm a sales um, executive, but in, t- in the middle of the nineties, I um, working at a bank, I wasn't super, super happy. And I started meditating and uh you know, it's, it's interesting that was a kind of inflection point, realizing that there's a lot more going inside of all of us, going on inside of us. Um, I stayed with the financial field. Um, then I took some time off, uh, traveled the world. I've been to 46 countries, and then I got a master's in social work. Um, I ran a juvenile justice program as my third daughter was being born. And then, um, so I started then a private practice in O seven in counseling while I continued my day job of um, sales. And that's really been kind of the pace and, and, and thread of my um, life over the last 15 years. Married for 23 years, three daughters. Um, so I have a part-time evenings and weekends counseling practice. Um, I ran a juvenile justice program um, in the early years when I got my degree. Um, you know, for me, I wanted to... I kind of wanted to give back a little bit, right? So I think this, you know, the class that I was born into, you know, we were pretty, um, we are pretty um, blessed. And I wanted to, um, you know, provide some contact and feedback and support for for, for folks that, um, you know, might be struggling. So, you know, the, the long and short of it is I'm a, I'm a kind of a sales guy on the outside and a, um, a seeker uh, counselor um, on the inside and kind of teacher and, and, you know, I'm always seeking and always looking to, to support other folks and, um, 
yeah, I guess that's, uh, that's a long short, but it took me eight years to write this book. Um, you know, my kids kept asking me when it's going to be done and, and we finally got it done over the last couple of months. It'll come out in October and I'm, I'm really excited about that. I'm excited too. And, you know, I, I used to do a lot of leadership training in real estate and um, I ran a real estate office for many years. And I really think that really good salespeople have a huge counseling side to them because if they really tune into their customer, instead of just trying to sell them anything, a good salesperson can sell them the right thing for that person, you know, and that means sometimes letting the sale go, going, it's not right for this person. But, you know, I used to say um, this great thing that I learned from Mark John Williams, you blow through the nose. Like, you know how you teach a kid to blow your nose? Yes. So in sales, you blow through the nose so that you can get to the yes and serve the person who really needs you. But that, that requires a little bit of, psychological emotional um awareness awareness yeah. and skill totally. set totally. so i think it's great that you have both sides of these to you because it tells me that you're probably a very good salesperson and a very good <laughs> counselor you know it, it, it's a really interesting insight you bring in terms of the business world daniel goldman who wrote the book e emotional intelligence right that's now a buzzword everybody knows it right, um, he did a, he did a ton of research and what what i found one of the most interesting things was he said that once you get to a certain part of your career, I think it's after about 10 to 12 years in your career, your skills, you've already, you've already used your intelligence, which stops growing at the age of 16, your, your, your IQ, but your EQ, the skills that you use further in your career, 80% are EQ. Mm -hmm. So all the stuff that you and I have learned over the last 20, 30 years in terms of intelligence and skill sets and Excel and, and all those things that we can do with our left brain, really success in the latter part of our career really comes out of our right brain and really understanding the landscape, who's in the room and, and really everything's relationships, everything's relationships, you know, and I always, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this, but you know, Harvard spent 75 years and they're still studying. It's this longitudinal study, the grant study. Um, they studied folks, uh, uh, students right out of uh, Harvard in the forties and they tracked them. And they distilled this study. It's on the internet. I think it came out three or four years ago. And they said the most important thing we found was that relationships are the most important thing in anybody's lives. Relationships. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, there's, there's, you know, proof in the pudding. Even Harvard admits that, you know, it's a lot about, it's about our inner, it's about our limbic, it's about our heart. It's about how we interact. It's really every relationship is about how I'm interacting with the other. It's not the other person. It's me understanding who I am and what I'm doing when I'm, in a relationship. Well, and you know, I can, I can liken this to when my mom was dying. I, I cared for my mom. She had a five-year battle with breast cancer. Wow. So when she was diagnosed and it was terminal by the time she was diagnosed and she outlived her terminal diagnosis by about three years. Wow. But what happened was her relational abilities made a big shift. You know, she's got this ticking clock. We all have one, but she had the big ticking clock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And everything changed for her. It became mm. about experiences with families and friends. It became, and I remember my mother at 74 years old, it was about a year before she died. Um, we have, she has seven grandsons. Wow. And so they were all swimming around our dock in a lake in upstate New York on the Finger Lakes where I was raised. And my mom was afraid of deep water. And one mm. of my little nephews was sitting on the dock and he was afraid to jump in. He wanted to get on the tube and float very safely back to the dock. 
And she looked at him and she, he said, you know, Graham, I'm, I'm afraid, Graham, I'm afraid. I don't want to go in. And, and everybody was trying to get him to dive or at least jump. Mm-hmm. And then my, one of the older grandsons said, well, Grandma, we've never seen you dive. You never jump. <laughs> and she looked at me and she goes, I have never jumped off a dock or dove in my life. Wow. And she stood up, and this is a no. true story. No, and no she way. Kind of belly flopped. I mean, she's 74. She's not going to do a springboard dive. <laughs> but she kind of belly flopped, dove, not only into the deep water, but off a moving, rocking raft. That's and I said to her later, like, Mom, what was that about? And she's like, well, I've walked this earth 74 years, and I'm not going to die not having done that. And she's like, I didn't want my grandson to be afraid of something so silly. And she's like, I was afraid of it my whole life. So it all became, and my mother lived more in those five years, I hazard to guess, than she did in the last 25 years you know, traveled, ate things, tried things, because it was as if this kind of veil was lifted off and said, we're here to enjoy life. And in her final days, all that mattered to her is that we knew she loved us and that she knew that we loved her. And that was it. Nothing mattered. No hair, no clothes, no house, no education, no fight, no anything. It was just, I love you, you love me. And it was boiled down to the very simplest, I love you and you love me. That, I mean, that's a stirring, it's amazing. You know, the Buddha says we should live each day like our house is kind of on fire. So when your house is on fire, what do you do? You collect your most, you collect your most valuable, you don't write all that other crap and you go outside and you, you know, do your thing. And that's what it seems like she did. She realized, oh gosh, my house is lightly on fire. I've got to do the meaningful things. And, you know, there's this amazing gentleman uh, named Robert Monroe, who's got the Monroe Institute down in Virginia. He studied out-of-body experiences for 40 years. And he distilled his work down to this comment. He said, all we take with us from this lifetime is shared experience. We don't take money. We don't take boats and cars. We take moments that we have. Each moment is basically um, it's, it's either, did I give enough or did I not give enough? It's not good or bad. It's not religious, it's not black or white. It's not, it's just, did I give enough? And what your grandma came to somehow powerfully was each moment is important and I'm going to make the most of each moment. And it's like, wow, that she just, there's, you can't teach that. You have to experience it. That that's amazing. Sandra. That really is amazing. Well, and it taught me what mindfulness and being present was about because honestly, Bill, I didn't get it. You know, I'm kind of one of those digital moms, you know, and I'm running a hundred miles an hour and to actually sit and say Mm -hmm. nothing, like just to have my presence, because at some point, like when your parent is dying, it's kind of hard to keep rattling on about stupid stuff. You know what I mean? Like I I would do that. Like I would sit down with the small talk. Yeah. Yeah. And she would just be laying there in the bed. And, and at a point I realized like, shut up. Like (laughs) this is not connection. Yeah. But it was, you know, it was kind of like the difference between prayer and meditation. Like prayer is, you know, information coming out of me and meditation is the answer coming back. Yes. And yes, that was something yes. that I learned sitting there at my mom's bedside going like, shut up. Yeah, you know, just, how about just, if you just be present 
And I didn't know how until that point, truly. Wow. And you nailed it. You know, that's why I'm always, you know, the book is really about getting people to sit quietly for five minutes because it's exactly what you're saying. The hardest thing, and typically it's the men struggle to be present. We struggle, you know, we can be present with our, our boss because, you know, he's writing the check. So we're going to be really present, but we come home and it's an emotional world. And it's, it's tough for us a lot of times to just take in information, not try to solve a problem, not to try to, you know, create a new thing that we're going to do. It's just being fully present. And that's really your relationship with your mom took a whole new level when you were able to just sit and, and absorb each other's presence, share that moment. And that moment doesn't have to be any more than what it actually is. You can talk about stuff or you can just be. And, you know, for me, that's, that's, that's what I love about the human experience is just getting time right here with you talking about your life, your family, you know, we're, we're having a, we're having a 45 hour long moment that that's going to, that we're going to take something from it. Right. And it's just about slowing down and knowing, am I able to be present this moment? Am I thinking about all these other things or can I just be available right here for 40 minutes and then I'll move on do the rest of my life. So in the rest of my day. So I love it. Your grandma, I mean, she's the Buddha. Right. I mean, that's, that's right. Buddha. That is, that is what, what she did is what we're trying to get folks to do is just slow down, be present. What's actually happening inside of you right now, because that's affecting everything around you. Right. And it was the weirdest thing because she's dying. So of all the people in the world that should speed up and do a lot, exactly. like it was counterintuitive to me. Like, yeah. you know, she would sit there with me and you know, the last time I saw her alive, you know, she was sitting up and she was holding my hand. It was right before I had to get on a plane to come back here with my kids. And she said, you know, I'm so proud of you. I couldn't be more prouder of you. And you know how much I love you. And they were just simple. And this was like my mom, she did not. Um, it wasn't her thing. No, she's Polish. Yeah. You know, yeah. she was, she was very reserved, very yeah. you know, kind of that kind of, there's two kind of poles. Like there's the yeah. loud poles and then there's like the reserved <laughs> yeah, exactly. ones. Like exactly. anybody yeah. from a Polish family will know what yeah. I'm talking yes. about. Yes. She was the reserved one. So for her to be so articulate and elegant about it and just so simple. Like that's mm. the thing, like everything that was so complicated, Bill got very simple. Like I got mm. so clear about my business. I got so clear about my kids. Like, yes, grades are important, but they're not yeah. the end all be all. Yes. My clients are important. And if I get fired, Oh, well, like, yeah. you know, things like that, like you have just this big shift on really what's valuable. And when you look at living a rich, full life, you know, I lived in Beverly Hills. I mean, you don't get more rich, full that's, life. That's rich that. and that's full. Yeah. Yeah. And I saw all Shiny. the people, you know, to come from the Finger Lakes, come from nothing and end up in Beverly Hills was a little bit like the Wizard of Oz being dropped <laughs> in this. <laughs> You know, and the search for meaning, you know, I think of Viktor Frankl and the search yep. for meaning and the meaning, you know, the search for, for your self-esteem in the things you're wearing or the car you're driving. And, you know, all of this stuff, all these trappings of humanity, they're fun and they should be fun and you should enjoy them, yeah. but they're not you. And that's where we talk about who am I in the relationship? Because you yes. can't have a relationship if you have all these products in your way. Totally. You nailed it. You know, it's <sighs> relationships are hard, you know, and it's hard and, and we make them harder because half the time we don't even understand what we're bringing to the relationship, you know, and, and one of my favorite 
things I came across years ago that's in the book is that a lot of us don't understand what the word relatus actually comes from, what it actually means. It's Latin. It means, relatus means to carry back. So when you're in a relationship, you're having this with your grandmother, your husband, your wife, whatever it is, you're, you're having these shared moments and then something gets kicked up in us, right? So your mom was kicking up in you, this understanding of, man, maybe I can simplify my life. And then you take that to your meditation, to your therapy, whatever you do, and you process that, and you understand, and then you bring back to the relationship new insights and new understanding. And that's how a relationship grows. It's vulnerability, understanding self, taking that stuff in and then bringing it back. So relationship is this, it's a verb. It's not a noun. A, a relationship is constantly moving, but a relationship only moves and grows and deepens if I'm doing the work on Bill. If I just say, nope, I'm good. I figured out my life. My, you know, Tell my wife, hey, listen, you need to do therapy. That's the relationship won't go anywhere. It'll only right. go as far as the person who's doing the least amount of work. It'll only go as far as the least mature person. And the only right. way we grow and mature is understand self and then bring back those new insights. And so your relationship with your mom, these last four or five, those last four or five years, I mean, it just, it deepened to the, to the deepest point because you guys were at that place where it meant a lot just to spend time with each other. That's it. Right. Just to be in front of each other. It's, it's right. awesome. And it it's really hard is. to show off to somebody who's dying. It's hard yes, right. to be like, Ooh, look at me, yeah. mom. Look how great exactly. it looks. Look at my new shiny toy. She's like, who cares? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah. you know, and the other thing that she taught me too, that I want to talk about with you today is the concept of of time traveling and mm. time traveling is one of the things that we get in trouble with ourselves. Cause if we time travel to the past, there's a lot of like, nobody goes to the back to the past, or at least most people don't and go, wow, that was really great. I did super on that. You know, we go back and, you know, we revisit the things like we regret our embarrassment, our hurts, you know, we travel back in time and that's so unfair to us because we can't change it. You know, you can't go back in time and change things. Yes, you can reframe things. Yes, you can yep. think about them differently. Yes, you can go yep. into denial, you know, all yep. those things. But so realistically, time traveling backward all it does is is fill you with sadness, regret, and anger, at least in my world. Sure. And time yeah. traveling forward, you know, because this was the biggest thing. I'm like, I can't time travel. Yeah. Is so much about worry. Yeah. You know, Big like time. granted, we can have, you know, we can have um what do we call it? Those things with the eye, the eye word, like um intentions. intentions. You know, yep. we, can, we can have visions and intentions yep. of where we want to be, and those are good. But more often than not, when we go into the future, you know, as a single mom, when I found myself suddenly single with a $12,000 a month overhead and two kids under the age of three, soul supporting <laughs> for three years, I could not stay present. All it was, was if I could pay my mortgage this month, Bill, it was fear. What about next month? About and then if I got two or three months in the bank, what about the fourth month? Like it was wow. seriously yeah. this crazy you know, worry, but in the future isn't written yet. And this, and again, it's not fair to go into the future like that because, you know, I could win the lottery. I could get yeah. married. I could form a company and support myself for the next 15 years, which I did. Who knew? Who knew? But in those, yeah. like that time traveling, like t going too far and going too back, I think is dangerous. It's a really interesting point. Um, I hear exactly what you're saying. What, 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 we've experienced is doing the work and, and, and looking at time travels as, as a topic. What I have found is that if I take my 55 year old self 
and I go back and I spend some time with my fourth grade self, then, the, and it's the fourth grade self or the fifth grade or the 10th grade self that's anxious or nervous or whatever, whatever he is, if I get a chance to dialogue with him, I can bring some adult perspective and I can just bring some empathy. And what happens in some of the work we've done, which has been really, really positive is we then take, then that understanding that, that new understanding of that inner child, which is so powerful, as you know, I can bring some of that new awareness to the 55 year old. And there's been so many times where I've been able to undo fear or whatever emotion I realized I was carrying, I can at least release it a little bit. So I know exactly what you say. If we just unconsciously go back, it's going to be the uncomfortable, bumpy stuff. It's the stuff that we're not going to want to feel. But if we can, for me, for us, if we can consciously go back in our inner, inner, inner self, touch base with that 10th grader that got dropped like a hot rock and who's still angry at women, then I can at least understand, oh, that's an old thing and I'm still angry today, but if I can undo and understand, oh, it was that moment and that's changed and I've matured and I've grown, then I feel like time travel back can be productive. But you're absolutely right. If I do it unconsciously and let my monkey brain go back in time, it's not productive. But if I can do it with a, with a, with a, with a desire to undo something and understand it, then I think my tomorrow might be a little bit more aware. Because that's really, as, as the Vedic Hindus say, we're here on earth for three things, consciousness, awareness, and bliss. We're here to understand what we're feeling and then to bring these feelings and concretize them, materialize them in the material world. Look what you've done. You've taken all this inner experience, all this inner knowledge, and you've created these powerful things. You did that through, you took your right brain information, your emotions, and you used your left brain to concretize it. Mm-hmm. But what's happened is a lot of our limbic brains all bumpy and scared and nervous. And so we can't concretize stuff. We can't materialize stuff because we haven't kind of cleaned up some of that old stuff. So I totally agree in terms of time travel. If we do it right, I think it could, it's super, super productive. And that's kind of what the book is about, is understanding that inner part of us, that, that younger part of us, um, and then bringing that new awareness, relatus, carrying back that new awareness to my wife, to my kids, to my family. And that's, that's really the whole premise of what I've been studying for, for quite a few years. Absolutely. Well, and I think like in a very simple analogy, Bill, I can't spell, never could. And in third grade, they <laughs> I'm the same way. I'm an English grade. major and I can't spell. Yeah, right. I mean, and they had this chart up with everybody's name on it. And whenever you got a 10 out of 10 on your spelling test, you got a star. And as the year went on, you know, all the other stars are there and I'm there with my two or my three, <laughs> you know, and it was this great source of shame to me. And yeah. When I would make a mistake in a meeting or in business, I would spell something poorly. You know, I do have dyslexia, but the whole point was I would make a public mistake and feel just crushed and humiliated. And and that that chart would come up right right in my head. And so one of the things, like I like to show people the how, the how of what you're talking about was to sit down with myself in the bathroom, like trying not to cry that I had humiliated myself over the spelling error. And then I had to talk to my old self and talk to my current self going, okay, spelling error is not the end of the world. Yeah, but you are a terrible speller. Look at your name. Your name's on the chart with three stars and everybody (laughs) else has 30. Then I'm like, okay, old San, knock it off. Like, so what if you can't spell? You have your MBA. You've got all these wonderful things. 
things. You've written books. You're a ghostwriter. Yeah. That's what spell check is for. A lot of people can't spell. So get over it. I'm sorry that happened to you. It hurts your feelings, but you don't have to be that person anymore. That's kind of the dialogue in your yes. head. Yes. What would your dialogue look like from a, from a licensed, you know, therapist yeah. standpoint? How would you reframe that little vignette that I gave you? Great. I love it. I love it. In fact, as you're talking, I'm going back to my sixth grade class, Mrs. Hearn, and, and I, I could actually be in that room right now. If, if, if I were to do that work with you, we'd go back and we would hang out in that classroom. And we, you and I, I would have you talking to your um, fifth grade self, whatever it is, and just talking through what was your experience, you know, where you ha forget about the spelling in that moment. Are you having fun? Are you enjoying what you're, you know, how do you feel about yourself? Um, well, you know, the little kid would be like, oh, I feel kind of good. I feel kind of I should learn how to spell. Yeah, but what are your dreams like? You know, what, you know, tell me about your inner world and, and kind of bring out all the, the powerful stuff that in a way stops the ability to spell. What happens is you have such a rich limbic emotional brain, the creativity, there's like your dreams and all that stuff. I bet you're just a rich, rich landscape and really help that little, that younger person. Because I've I worked with young kids a lot, um, you know, running that juvenile justice program. These are 15 year old boys, but developmentally they were nine year olds getting them to see that this is a moment where, you know, spelling is one little sliver of this rich experience and just getting to feel, feel that inner world kind of rise up a little bit. And as, and, and we've seen it powerfully. I've seen it powerfully. I've done this so many times. You can actually see the adult when we're doing that work, that 50 year old self or however old you are kind of filling up with the joy that that child has in there. But that spelling thing was keeping a pall over. And it's yeah. just kind of lightening up and going, let's just celebrate the fact that there's such a richness outside of the spelling bit. And we're going to solve the spelling bit going forward because look at all the success I'm having. So this is the dialogue you're having with your younger self. You're actually talking and it's powerful because our younger self knows all of us because it is us. And um, we've, I've just seen really big work happen and people just feeling better. Let's face it. The only way you undo resentment frustration, anger from the old days is fill it up with self, fill it up with the stuff that you do love. And it, and it, the resentment tends to dissipate. Now it's not a cure all. You have to keep doing the work because new stuff's going to happen. And then you're going to go right back to that heavy resentment place. But it's really having this powerful dialogue with that inner self and letting her feel, you know, maybe she just gets up and starts dancing in the classroom. Well, that feels awkward. Well, no, just do it. Dance. And suddenly, you know, you get these, these, these adults having this inner experience with a younger child and, and just, again, celebrating as best as you can that moment. And it undoes a little bit incrementally, and then you do it over time. And it's, I mean, it works. It's really the most, I think, well, yeah, the most powerful it's kind work. of rewriting the memory. You know, I'm a yes. tech person, so I'm into, like, rewriting things. And, yep. you know, if I can reframe it, and every time I think of, you know, how poorly I spell, if I can go, like, yeah, but I kicked ass in kickball. Like, Absolutely. I could kick that ball so Bingo. hard. And, you know, when Bingo. you were talking about that, I go back to my third grade going, my favorite thing was to run and play kickball, you know. Me too. Me too. Yeah. So, and why don't we remember the fun things? Why is the emotional anchor of something that's painful or traumatic so deep, but we forget all the good stuff? Forget all the good stuff. It's exactly, yeah, it's amazing how one moment in time can put a dent in the limbic, literally a neuron dent in the limbic body. And, you know, 40 years later, that little dent is still echoing going, I feel less than, I feel less than, I feel <clears throat> not good enough. Um, and really going back to that moment, that that spelling bee moment or that spelling 
moments was such a powerful spot. It seems like you've done the work, but it, you know, you just have to address. And I think the biggest challenge people have, and you've said it, is when they travel back, they're, they're going to run into stuff like, oh, I can't go there. I can't go there. So it really almost precludes, it prevents deeper work being done. That's why it's helpful to have someone else kind of in the room when they're going back. Hey, we're going to travel through. Okay, that was, that was really uncomfortable. We're going to work through that. Get to that moment. And if they can get to that moment, chances are things can shift that they're willing to give the heart attention to it. Well, yes, and that's what I forget Michael Singer's book. You know, he wrote about thorns and how okay. people, people have these emotional thorns. Yes. And they will move their whole lives around hitting those emotional thorns. So like, you know, the spelling one is kind of a real simple one, but maybe I go into mathematics because I can't spell, or maybe I, I go away from my lifelong love of reading and writing because I can't smell, do anything I can to avoid that thorn. And I think you've got to go back like, you know, that Leo, the lion, we got to go back and kind of pull out those thorns because we want to live free. We want to live joyfully. And why would we carry something from the third grade that we all do? Like, I mean, think about it logically. How dumb is that? That's like carrying your third grade. I had a, a Wonder Woman lunchbox, yes. you know, and it was, <laughs> know exactly. you know, it was like yes. metal. You could slice yeah. your fingers to ribbons on it. It rusted yeah. around the corners, you know, totally. that whole thing. So why would I still be carrying that today? And that's Amazing. like a perfect visual of going, okay, this stuff that we have in our head, our collection of Wonder Woman, you know, maybe the Archies, you know, the Mystery Machine lunchbox. Heck yeah. They're all I love in the, there. all those. Yeah. So also, can we bless them and let them go? Because yes. one of the things that I'm grateful for, for that stupid little star chart, <laughs> is that- Inspired you. It, it, it catalyzed you, didn't it? Ultimately. It did. And it, and it fostered my love of words. Because I was such a poor speller- I used to sit there with the dictionary, read it, and say the words in my head. Because if I heard the musicality of the words, I could remember it. But if I just had to remember how to spell it, I couldn't. So it created this great love of the English language. And I have, you know, I also can speak a little German, a little French. I took Latin. Like, I love words. And maybe I wouldn't love words if I suck at writing. Yeah, exactly. And and what's even what's really interesting is the converse of going back to that classroom when you're having these joyous moments and celebrating the fact that you're writing and doing the ghostwriting. You bring what we try to do is bring then that sixth grader into the current, and then now she's celebrating because when she goes back inside, you know, further inside, and she gets quiet because we forget about her. Um that actually alters the energy as well. So you bring her to the present going, hey, we're having fun now. I remember when I first started meditating, I was having these you know, you know, deep remembrances of being a young kid and being on my bike with my dog. What did I do? I was 32 years old living in London. I bought a bike. So I brought the fourth grader with me into London to give me this kind of camaraderie with this younger part that I thought was a million miles away. I thought it was another lifetime, but actually he was still living. And celebrating inside, he just, I wasn't paying attention to him. And so now I brought him to the present. So, you know, that inner world is with us 24-7. You know, in our dreams, it's always trying to beckon us, right? And then we wake up going, oh, I had some weird dreams. I don't know what that was, right? We move on with our adult life, our adult day. But bringing that little kid with us all the time, it, it, it changes everything. And just 
why relationships, why marriages 50% at least fail is because we're carrying this stuff in. We don't know it's there because our rational mind has shut all this inner stuff down. Yep. Now we're in a relationship and my wife says something to me and it kicks up this ninth grade frustration with women, whatever it is. I didn't know it was still living in there. You opened the mystery machine. That opened the my- right. And so I'm yelling at her and you know, I'm being a jerk and being super immature. She's like, who are you? Right. right. And suddenly I'm like, Oh my God, there's this, all this stuff in here. So I always say, use the arena and the, and use the altar of marriage as work on self. I ultimately believe whether a marriage works or not, doesn't matter. It's the work we do on self right. in the friction of marriage is the beautiful part. That's the work because my job and your job, any human being's job is to finish our life off. Your right. grandmother finished your, your mother finished her life off. She, she completed it. She got what she, for, for the, I would say probably 98% of what she wanted. She got, it, especially those last five years. If our job is to complete it, we need to get all the stuff to come up. Right. Well, marriage is the perfect friction arena to bring all this stuff up. The problem is people run from it. Men run from it. They're going, oh, my wife's this, my boss is this, all this too. stuff. No, no, no. Yeah. yeah, men more so, but yeah. And, and so for me, the whole thing is embrace the friction. I call it stand in the fire. And all the fire is, is that old emotion around bad spelling. It's all the emotions in there. And it's somehow it's unconsciously getting kicked up in your marriage or kicked up in your relationships and we avoid it. But the whole point of this whole kind of, you know, the work I've been doing for the last 20 years is don't avoid it. Take the work on self, do it, and then bring back these insights. We lot us, bring it back. So it's powerful. What you're saying, it's the most important work is that inner work to me is, is everything. Well, and, you know, it, it, it's so important. And it comes back to this little simple thing that one of the teachers said to my kids on um, – some like soccer field experiment. (laughs) And I heard her yell at this kid to just be himself. Okay. So now what does that mean? Like, cause the kid's looking like, what do you mean be myself? What do you mean be myself? (laughs) But you know, you were talking about that inner bill, you know, the five-year-old, the 10-year-old, the 15, 20, 30, 40 year old. bill. Yeah. Who is, myself like this is a really big question because if you go into my family well i'm the baby girl i'm the spoiled one you know i'm the one who's had 12 careers you know i'm the divorced one who can't seem to follow directions scatterbrain (laughs) so there's one set then you go into my tech side of my business and she's like grandma programmer because i'm like the old programmer but i know all the original programming language i'm super valuable so all of a sudden i'm like this cool you know, 50 something that people, 20 somethings think is cool. Like, wow, she's so cool. She gets it. She can do that. <laughs> then you go to my kids and I have teenagers. Mom, why did you post that picture on Facebook? It's the first day of school. I'm a senior. Did you really have to do that? Blah, blah, blah. So Love who it. am I? If you ask my sisters and my cousins who I am, you will get probably 10 different yeah. stories. Powerful. So I know what you're saying. When you say to me, Bill, and I say to you, Bill, just be yourself in a relationship because that's what we hear all the time, right? Yeah. Just be yourself. Well, how do we be ourselves when society, uh, you know, religious institutions, educational institutions, companies all label us with a bunch of different conditions? So who are we at our core? How do you be yourself? 
That's such a good question. You know, um, there's only one way to answer that. I, I know the path and the path is, and as Yogananda says, the great, great yogic teacher, he says, truth is an experience. It's not a thought. So it's my experience of myself is who I am and who I might be in one moment might be the, you know, kind of dictatorial father. I could be the uh, really cool boss. I could be the, uh, you know, subservient, um, you know, employee. I can be all those things. But the only way I know who I truly am is I have to get quiet, find a little place, close my eyes and go, who, what am I feeling in this moment right now? Our feelings hold the answers to that question. And so who you are at your core, your, 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 your friends and family know who you are. You're, you're hardworking, you're powerful. You got the powerful feminine energy. You've got the combination of the masculine and feminine. You can create, you can feel, you can empathize. That's who you are at your core. On the outside, you're all these different personalities, but on the inside, that fifth grader, and you know exactly who you are at your core, who you were in fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, that feeling body, your appreciation for the world and life then is who you are now. It's coded with all these other things, but I know for me, I know exactly who I am, but the only way I found out is, you know, many, many years of sitting quietly in tears and opening up and realizing, oh, I am you know, I am a bunch of things. I'm a, you know, I'm a seeker. I'm a feeler. I'm an understander. I'm a, but at my core, I have, there's, there's few core qualities that, that we have. And again, in summary, the only way we know is we have to sit quietly with our eyes closed, feel our heart, feel our belly. That's where all the information is. And so few people want to do that. Why? We've already talked about it because when they close their eyes, the first things that come up are these old emotions and they're really uncomfortable and they open their eyes, get back to the rational world. The rational neocortex is designed not to feel pain. It's designed to push away old feelings. And so they stay up here and they don't really know who they are. And that's the biggest challenge. And, you know, it sounds so simple. Like it's, it, it can't be just sitting quietly and understanding, well, try it and try it more and more. And the more you sit quietly, you will have shed a tear and you go, ah, oh, that's who I am. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good, simple human being living my life and I'm going to learn more about myself and I'm going to use this knowledge through feelings and intuition to, to concretize and complete my physical life. Absolutely. And I think a good way to start going back is to look at what you used to love to do. Like my favorite thing would be, I grew up on a lake, so I would sit at the, you know, edge of the lake and I would take all these rocks. I'd make these little rock houses. And do you remember the little people, the Fisher Price little people? They're like perfect yeah. trachea blockers for kids. Like you exactly. couldn't design a toy better to fit in a yes. kid's trachea. Yes. You know, but I loved my little. Sideways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I would make these little houses and I would make families and I would make communities and one would help the other. And I would take like those little buttercup flowers you could pick and, and dandelions, you know, and make all these things. And I was happy making my little story worlds, if you will. Yeah. Yes. And as I get into the later years of my active duty parenting is what I call you. Know, <laughs> it's not like the active duty when your kids are really tiny, right. you know, yeah, it's a different, different skill set. Yeah. Different. Yeah different skill set, but I start looking at, you know, well, how do I want to spend the next season of my life? And, yes, you know, yes. I got myself a literary agent. I'm, I'm writing stories, you know, writing novels about families and women. And it's just a grown up version of me making the little buttercup houses. And you nailed it. You, you wouldn't it. think in a million years after this, you know, traveled around the world, high education, you know, 
Should I be running a big Fortune 500 company? Yes, according to a piece of paper. If you wrote yeah. all my skill sets right. down in a piece exactly. of paper. But this girl liked to make her little buttercup families. And yeah. that's how I feel when I write my novels, you know, that hopefully will be out next year and they're women's fiction awesome. and they're all about all the things we talk about woven in. But it's so simple. It's but so I couldn't simple. have done that in my 20s. Because no, even though I did write for, for Harlequin in my 20s, I did write some work, my stories were stilted, my stories were flat, because I hadn't lived yet. And now there's a richness to it. So I've kind of come from this little girl playing Buttercup Families in the Rocks to full circle. Full, full circle. circle. Absolutely. You know, it, it's funny you say that in, in our counseling, in my counseling practice, people say, well, how do I get to that next step? I said, well, what do you love to do? Oh, I love to fish. Okay. So go, you can go fishing. What else do you like to do? Oh, you know, I always like astronomy. Well, go take an astronomy class. Right. Because when you're in that astronomy class, you're going to feel relaxed. You're going to feel softened. You're going to feel connected. Like connected. And so it's, you nailed it, you know, and again, why did I buy that bike the first, when I started meditating? The only reason I felt like I want to do it because I felt a sense of freedom when I was on my bike. And while on my bike, I was having these insights. And then out of nowhere, I started chanting. Where the hell did that come from? I'm a white boy from Jersey. I started chanting these Native American chants. So who was I? I was a compilation of a lot of different things, but I didn't understand it. And the only way I, like you, was to slow down. You, you were doing your blocks. You were doing your thing. I was doing my chanting. I was doing my drawing. And I was doing my dancing. Dance? And when I was dancing, I felt open and free. And I, I said, that's who I am. Now, you can't dance in a corporate world, but I can dance when I come home, feel that freedom, bring up that intuition, feel better, and then bring that higher sense of that deeper sense of self into the world the next day in your adult life, right? You can't, you can't be building blocks and, you know, riding your bike around the corporate boardroom. No, but, but you can sneak in the bathroom like I exactly. used to do in the middle of the day and have your, like, put my headphones on, do my thing and like, Same with me. just I would, re-energize. Totally. Just and, and, I think people are afraid. I think, you know, adults are, are nervous to relax into those moments. That's why they have to find those moments. And that's a big part of the counseling work. A lot of the couple counseling work that I do is one partner's struggling. The other partner's feeling pretty good. The one that's struggling can't, isn't relaxing into it and helping that person go back to that little kid and relax into it, bring up that sadness, bring up that vulnerability and share it with your partner. As soon as you share that little child part your partner's going to empathize because your partner's looking for that vulnerability, that looking for that deeper sense of self, right? If you and I are in a relationship, right. if, it's a, want... if it's a, if it's a good relationship, if you're in a relationship yeah, exactly. with a narcissist, I'm just well, going to put that out here. I'm 100%. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. They'll you're right. Everything you vulnerability against you, but exactly. It's a great point. Yeah. You have to kind of catch it early enough where it's not that the resentment, you know, that narcissistic stuff has, has already built up such a wall in you and a wall in him that no matter what you do, yeah. I'm not saying that was the case. But no, just, I'm just putting that because right. when I first started doing some of this stuff, Bill, I was referred to a couple marriage counselors and they were very much, you know, you need to uh, tell him how you feel. You need to do all these things that couldn't have been more damaging to me because they throw all that vulnerability back yep. to you. So yep. I think it's important. And I think, you know, most, most therapists pick up on it after a while when they meet the spouse, but if you're in a one-sided 
Yes. Where the spouse won't go to counseling with you, your problems all you. That's probably yep. a good sign that you're dealing with a narcissist. <laughs> you nailed it. In fact, if, you, if you're doing couples work and one of the couples isn't willing to come in, you know it's yeah, yeah it's, we're, right. we're in the late innings. Flag, I don't, so. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, you know, but that's I. Powerful. But, the one thing that I, you know, I want to touch on that you said, because we're going to wrap it up, but I'm going to have you back and we're going to have more conversations Sweet. like Thank this, you. is the, the idea that I really believe that music opens me up to the universe, opens me up to spirit, opens me up, brings me back to my childhood. And it doesn't matter what kind of music it is. It's whatever music serves me at the time. But if you guys listening at home want to try this, put on your favorite song Shut the door, dance around for two minutes, and then see if you have light and joy and happiness and connection. Your heart just flies right open with that music. Even the toughest, like my dad, he's military, but if I put on a John Philip Sousa march, his heart opens. Totally. So it's totally. whatever music does to you. But, you know, you mentioned that too. You're like, dance around. It's the music. 100%. And, and, and what's, what's powerful is the science behind that is that when those sound waves go into our ear, they automatically send a signal down to the heart that it's safe. They send a signal to the neuron, to the neuro, neurocortex, that it's safe, that the world is safe for that moment. And what happens is mm-hmm. our cycles start to slow down and here in the neocortex, which means our heart can open up. Because when we're rationalizing right now and thinking, our heart is, is beating and we're not paying, this isn't paying attention to this, but we relax this, our heart opens up. And, and what's really powerful is there was three sounds when you and your mom's womb, when I was in my mom's womb, when any human beings in the mom's womb, there's three sounds that they hear 24 seven, the breathing, mm-hmm. right? So we like chimes, we like wind, right? The drum, boom, 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 right. boom, the heartbeat and the water. So any kind of music is gonna mm-hmm. kick up automatically one of those three, and we spend 85% of the time in the womb dreaming. So automatically, good music, music that you love is going to get you almost into that dream state, which is going to allow you to open up. So the science behind music, to me, I always try to look at what's the core, what's, what's at the base of that, what's actually happening physically, you nailed it. And if people can just listen to a little bit of music and just be in that space, it, it, it begins. It really begins that opening up, and that, that's what it's all about. Terrific. So how can people find out more about you and how can they get your book? So uh, the book's going to come out uh, end of October 22nd. It'll be on uh, Amazon or wherever else. Uh, you can go to wholecounseling.com. That's uh, like Whole Foods, but wholecounseling.com. Um, there's a little, some snippets in there and, and contact information. And um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, uh, you know, as, as you probably know, writing the book is one thing and then getting it getting all the publishing stuff and all the edits. We've just finally did the hard copy edits, finished those a couple of days ago. So, um, you know, it's a long journey, but um, it'll be out October 22nd is, uh, is when it'll be out. Super. So you're going to want to check this out because you want to have a great relationship with yourself first and then yes. others second. And this is a great exactly. way to do it. We'll be back Love again it. next week with another great episode. Thanks for being with us today on Motherhood Talk Radio, starring Sandra Beck. Join us again. We've got something you won't want to miss. Motherhood Talk Radio is a production of Beck Multimedia.